Greetings, you're listening to Cantus Firmus at the Movies. My guest today is Dr. Robert Price. Dr. Price has received uh, doctorates in both systematic theology and New Testament from Drew University and is a former fellow of the Jesus Seminar. Uh, however, he's famously uh, an atheist scholar at the forefront of the Christ myth movement, which denies the existence of historical Jesus, uh, having written books on the subject such as The Incredible Shrinking Son of Man. <laughs> you can find a number of his books related to biblical studies on Amazon and even hear him as the host of the Bible Geek podcast. He's also written extensively in the field of H.P. Lovecraft studies and uh, co-wrote a book about the rock band Rush with his wife Carol entitled Mystic Rhythms, the Philosophical Vision of Rush. He can be found at robertmprice.mindvendor.com. Amazingly, we aren't talking about any of those fascinating topics today, uh, but about the 1999 film The Matrix. But before we do that, it might be interesting to talk to you a little bit, uh, Dr. Price, about uh, kind of your own background. And so, you know, you spent, you know, quite a bit of time in uh, theological studies. Uh, is it my understanding that, that at that when you started that process, you were a Christian and then that, that uh, there was a shift that happened? Yeah, I I guess I got converted. My parents always had gone to a Southern Baptist church in Mississippi where I was born. And uh, so I grew up just believing in it. Uh, they weren't really uh, uh, militant or enthusiastic evangelicals because Southern Baptist uh, religion is sort of the ingrained culture religion down there. And uh, But I certainly believed in uh, Jesus and God, etc., I had no real thought of theology, what any of it meant, but I figured they were real. Uh, then uh, I moved to New Jersey, went to a conservative Baptist association church, and they were more militant. And I had a great youth through their youth programs. And it was uh, being that I was like a, uh, an archetypal nerd. It was, that was the, that was a better place for me to find acceptance, uh, than, uh, the, the typical uh, drug crazed degenerates in, uh, uh, junior high and high school. I, I really had nothing common in common with them. I witnessed to them, uh, but I really belonged at church and, uh, just had a great, great time. It was sort of like, uh, uh, teenagers in the, well, good teenagers in the fifties. It was like good clean fun and it really was fun and my faith did mean a whole lot to me and um, uh, the study of the Bible was real important uh, right off the bat and um, th the more I got into it the more I wanted to understand it one afternoon we had some kind of a film uh, I don't know moody science film or one of these things I guess I was in late junior high when when I saw this and they went through the standard thing about Papias and Irenaeus and the evidence that Jesus existed and rose from the dead and I thought wow I, I had no idea you could virtually prove this and that planted the seed and by the time I was uh, in college, I was really interested in apologetics. I loved F.F. Mm -hmm. F. Bruce and uh, John Warwick Montgomery especially and uh, J.N.D. Anderson, uh, Josh McDowell, to a slightly lesser degree, I guess, since he was unoriginal. But um, and, and decades later, when I began to read a newer crop of apologists, I was amazed that there was really nothing new. They were just slinging the same old hash, almost like a ritual repetition of the same old arguments. Uh, but at any rate, um, the more I got into apologetics, it had the opposite effect. On the one hand, I um, 
realized that it was all probability, that if you had to offer arguments in favor of a position, it meant that it was really up for debate and not as certain as I had taken for granted it was. And so the the very process of defending it tended to undermine my taken for granted faith in it. Uh, and uh, like I, I felt like I couldn't offer arguments that uh, Jesus rose from the dead if I myself were not convinced of them. I, I would try to take the position of the unbeliever I'd be talking to, and I did talk to plenty of them, and I'd say, would this really convince me if I weren't already in the fold? And after a while, the more I read on into the beginning of Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, I felt betrayed that a lot of these arguments on which I had placed so much weight just didn't hold water. And I thought, well, I've just been getting the 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 spin. And um, uh, th then I just determined that evangelicalism just wasn't for me. Uh, the subculture was stifling. And uh, uh, I decided to check out other theologians, the ones I'd been told were all wrong and go into hell, uh, Bultmann, Tillich, uh, loads of other ones. And that was endlessly fascinating. and But I continue to read uh, conservative theologians. I loved Clark Pennock, for instance, and, uh, and eventually became friends with him. Um, so uh, I, uh, I guess I loved Schleiermacher, Tillich, and all these liberal theologians. And uh, finally, I decided that I believe there was some kind of philosophically conceived ultimate being, but in terms of whether miracles had ever occurred, I figured there's no way to know that. Uh, and so I'm agnostic about that. And I uh, um, eventually found a, a church, this is after I uh, got out of, uh, after I graduated Gordon-Conwell with Billy Graham as our commencement speaker, that was great. Um, I uh, started going to church with this very unique pastor who was really into the New Testament and Kierkegaard and all sorts of stuff, just fascinating. And um, I finished my first doctorate around that time, and my wife and I moved to North Carolina where I started teaching, and I started going to the Episcopal Church. I loved the liturgy and all that. I was still kind of... Uh, I guess, rationalistic and vague in my uh, theology. But uh, after about four or five years of that, my old pastor, who I learned so much from, left, and some friends urged me to uh, throw my hat into the ring. And uh, sure enough, uh, they did make the gross mistake of picking me as the new pastor. And um, I preached, uh, et cetera, there for about six years. But during that time, I went back to Drew, got this New Testament doc, uh, doctorate, and I was reading even more radical theologians like Don Cupid, and I, I got into deconstruction and Jacques Derrida, and I began to realize, gee, I, I'm becoming an atheist. I just don't think there's adequate grounds to believe in this divine being anymore. But it didn't make me uh dismiss religion or theology I, i've i never came to the point of uh agreeing with richard dawkins that 
that uh, theology is just a field without a subject and it's just silly nonsense. I thought, no, you, you wouldn't say that if you really knew anything about it. And it, it's like the history of philosophy. Uh, it's fascinating to see what all these thinkers thought and how they understood it, even if you don't happen to agree with this one or that one. Mm -hmm. So I've always had love and respect for uh, theology and especially for the Bible. Uh, and, and I mentioned how as soon as I accepted Christ and all that, I dived into the Bible. Well, my interest in the Bible outlived my uh, faith in, in Christ and Christianity. Still loved that, but just couldn't believe it was true anymore. Well, uh, this, this hunger to understand the Bible led to my reading all kinds of biblical critics and commentaries and monographs and all that. Uh, culminating in uh, the, the PhD in New Testament. And I still remain just totally interested in that. And I, I can't uh, hate it or just debunk it. I did an article once called, Is the Bible Mein Kampf? Refuting the, the total negativism that a lot of atheists have. Uh, and um, so I'm still, uh, like Tillich once said, on the boundary. Uh, I do not feel I'm an enemy of Christianity. Uh, I guess I'm sort of a respectful center. And, um, it's, uh, it, to me, it's, I, I don't seek to, uh, get people to convert to atheism. That, that would be a, a foolish, uh, and, and arrogant thing to do. What, what business is it of mine? What anybody else thinks I, my debates are all about just the facts as I see them. Like when I see people making William Lane Craig, people like that, making what I think are just almost fraudulent arguments. I feel like since I know about the material, I should try to tell the other side of it if anybody wants to hear it. But I, I don't try to tell people that uh, they should be atheists or that they should even agree with my conclusions. I just want to be Socratic and uh, prompt people to think things out for themselves and provide resources for their thought that they might not have had otherwise. Um, so, um, I, um, I'm a little hard to categorize. Luckily, I, I don't like the, the labels. I even sort of, sort of hate to use the term atheist because I, I'm not a political leftist nut like most of them are. Uh, I don't hate religion or religious people. So I don't really want to be identified with that. And, uh, I will, I prefer to say I'm a free thinker or a non-theist, but I really, uh, haven't found a good movement to, uh, to be identified with. That's actually one of the things um, that, that I've always kind of found interesting about you, and, and I think why I've, um, uh, you know, you're, you're one of the, um, you know, public atheists that I, I have some of the most respect for, because you take a view um, that, you know, some would say is, is, is more uh, radical uh, as far as uh, skepticism of, of uh, you know, historical Jesus and New Testament and, and stuff like that. And yet you're much more genial than, than those who, who, who <laughs> don't go as far as you do on the scholarship. Mm. Um, and, and I've always sort of appreciated, um, you know, your, your sort of genial approach, your, your, the fact that you're more respectful, that you don't view um, people who disagree with you as necessarily stupid uh, or, mm -hmm. or, or uh, evil in some way. Yeah. Um, and uh, th that's always made me, I think, um, more uh, more interested in, in hearing your perspective and listening to you and not in just a way of like, oh, you know, like, you know sometimes you have a tendency to listen to somebody you disagree with because you want to hear how stupid they sound. 
Um, and uh, I, I, have, I haven't had that uh, approach with you at all, um, even when I disagreed with you. you know, um, so I've always had an appreciation for the attitude that you had when, when you've approached these things. I really appreciate that. That is sort of what I'm aiming at. Uh, and it, by the way, even the thing with the Christ myth theory, I, I realize this is not uh, going to be popular with with uh, believing Christians, but it could be. Like uh, the idea of no God and, and the idea of no historical Jesus, they don't depend on one another, and uh, they really don't. Uh, sand or fall together because you can certainly believe that there's a God uh, whom you can experience and that uh, the Christ of the Gospels is a very powerful transformative symbol uh, even if you don't think there was a historical man at the basis of it like many Buddhists regard uh, the Buddha uh, and uh, that's always going to be a minority of, uh, of Christians but if you believe in God, that doesn't necessitate a historical Jesus. If mm -hmm. you uh, if you don't believe there was a God, there still might have been a historical Jesus, uh, and uh, it uh, works both ways. There could be a historical. Uh, there could be a God without a historical Jesus. There could be a historical Jesus without a God. That the two questions don't. Uh, stand or fall together and in no case do i claim to know anything because uh, you uh, as a historian you cannot afford to be dogmatic uh, lest uh, new evidence turns up and shows how wrong you were uh, like that uh, oh i don't know some decades ago now somebody claimed to have found the uh, secret diaries of adolf hitler and Hugh Trevor Roper, another historian, said, oh, boy, this is great. We've got it from the Fuhrer's own mouth. And then it turned out shortly the whole thing was a hoax. And, boy, what an idiot uh, Trevor Roper turned out to be. Like, you, you, uh, you, you'd have to keep everything open. And I certainly feel that way about the historical Jesus thing. Well, and, and what's kind of interesting about you is that you do have, I mean, such a, uh, a wide knowledge and a fascination with um, some of the, the themes and ideas and the symbols uh, th that come up in not just uh, the New Testament, but in, in the Gnosticism and, and, and sort of these, um, you know, uh, ancient, uh, um, you know, cults and mystery cults and, and, and groups like that. And uh, I think that's why it could be, I'm really been looking forward to hearing what you had to say about the film we're talking about, The Matrix. Mm. Um, because there is like, it's just jam packed with all of these, you know, uh, you know, sort of symbols and ideas and things from Gnosticism and, you know, things sort of borrowed from Christianity here and there and, and, uh, you know, uh, various, uh, philosophical schools. And so, um, maybe before we start discussing, um, all those sort of themes, uh, I, I'll probably, I should probably give just a quick breakdown of the movie for the two or three people who haven't seen it. Um, <laughs> just keep it really short and of course we'll, to have a good conversation we're going to be spoiling uh, a lot of different elements in the film the film is uh, the 1999 uh, uh, Wachowski brothers although they now uh, identify as women so I guess they we, both of them? Wachowski, they both do yes so, oh so, what do you know huh. yeah pretty interesting uh, a film uh, The Matrix as I said the movie's been pretty widely seen but but in essence it's about a, a world in which machines have manufactured a false reality uh, which is uh, sort of fed to human beings uh, sleeping in pods uh, whose energy is harvested to keep the machines running. Keanu Reeves plays Thomas Anderson, a hacker who is brought out of uh, this false reality matrix by Lawrence Fishburne's character Morpheus, as well as uh, Carrie Ann Moss's character Trinity. 
Uh, Morpheus believes that Anderson, uh, who goes by the name Neo, is the uh, prophesied reincarnation of the first man who came out of the Matrix and who will eventually free mankind from the machines. So that's the, in a nutshell, do you think I missed anything there? Uh, no, no, that's, that's a good summation. Okay, good, good start. So um, I'll start with this. When I had a, I, I sort of contacted you about, about doing a film together, I know I knew of your love for like old horror movies and things like that. So I think I was sort of thinking in terms of like, you know, hey, maybe a movie like Frankenstein because it's about, you know, the, um, the audacity of man trying to be like God and, and you know, the, the power of creation and all these things. And uh, you'd said, well, how about The Matrix? And so I was wondering why it was that, uh, that you picked this film as the, as the one that you thought, you know, if we're going to talk about one of these movies, that out of all these millions of movies that have been made, this is the one. Well, uh, it's because it uh, depends on Gnosticism. And I love the other ones. And as you say, Frankenstein is filled with all kinds of significance, and so are many of the others. Uh, but this one uniquely sort of swallows the whole thing and uh, and then re plays it out in modern terms, which, if Gnosticism is true, would would be inevitable. I mean, it, it wouldn't be consigned to the dustbin of as just a, some ancient fanaticism. Uh, it was the the um, the study of Gnosticism by. Um, one of Bultmann's students, Hans Jonas, who uh, that study gave Bultmann the idea of demythologizing to understand myths as uh, sort of pictures of the self-understanding in the world of whatever group believes in and propagates that myth. Uh, and uh, Gnosticism, Jonas, of, or Jonas, uh, said it, it must be the product uh, of a s small group of, of misfits, uh, intellectuals, whatever, who felt like strangers in a strange land. And uh, that this goes, uh, this has gone on from creation and will to the end of the world. And um, in the, uh, the, the, the majority have a belief that kind of works, but it's not what they think it is. Uh, it's the, uh, the 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 religion of Jews and Christians. I don't know if they spoke about other ones. Uh, inculcates morality and creates good people, but uh, as it gives them laws to live by and and so on. But there is a higher truth than that. Uh, you, you when you understand it, you realize that all of this religion is the creation of uh, a lower being, the demiurge borrowed from Plato, uh, a creator entity that is nonetheless lower than the gods. Uh, the gods uh, are too uh, holy and exalted to dirty their hands with, uh, with uh, the, the foul matter of creation, but somebody did. And th there's this elaborate thing as to how the Demiurge eventually uh, uh, proceeded from the Godhead, but is a fallen being. Well, this being self-aggrandizing, wanting worship, created a material world and stole sparks of light from the divine realm to uh, 
to jumpstart this this mud pie world. Uh, and um, some human beings have the divine spark in them and don't feel at home here. They somehow instinctively feel they do not belong. And those who are, are awakened it's their job to very carefully go out, kind of like Diogenes did, seeking an honest man. Uh, they they go out and uh, and look for people who don't feel at home and say, "Well, I I know what you mean, and uh, let me tell you why you feel that way. Uh, you do not belong to this world. You belong to another one, but you need to understand your true origin, or you will never escape it." You'll continue to be reincarnated in this world of pain and suffering uh, until you get the gnosis, the knowledge, uh, and uh, then you will uh, leave reincarnation behind. It's very much like Vedanta Hinduism and, uh, and Mahayana Buddhism. And uh, so uh, Morpheus, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, but this must remain true no matter what the civilization and culture changes occur. There'll always be a select minority, and uh, the, the Gnostic must be very careful who he speaks to and how, which is what I think the saying, don't throw your pearls before swine or your holy things before dogs, lest they trample them underfoot turn on you and tear you to pieces from Matthew. I think that's what that's about because there have been Gnostics, Christian, Muslim, other ones who dared speak this truth publicly and were martyred for it. And uh, so the Gnostic has to be very careful and know who to approach. It's kind of like the story where um, the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus Socratically says, well, you know the commandments, don't you? Thou shalt not do this and that and the other thing. He says, oh, oh yeah, I've, I've kept those ever since I was a kid. What do I still lack? And Jesus in Matthew says, he, he looked upon him and loved him, loved him and said, if you would be perfect, sell all you won't give it to the poor, come and follow me. Well, that's kind of like uh, the, the Gnostic. Ah, you see, there's something else. Well, I got it. Here, here it is. It's the red pill. And uh, after that, you're not going to feel any more at home in this, this fallen world. Uh, but uh, at least you don't have to stay here forever and you can perhaps give the red pill of gnosis to others, that's going to be prevalent as long as the world exists, and it will exist until the final divine sparks are liberated from their imprisonment, and, and then the world collapses uh, into its uh, uh, its uh, swampy origin, and uh, the, the righteous, uh, the Gnostics, and others are, are saved or rejoined with the divine realm and with the unknown father. Uh, so um, it's, it's easy to get the Gnostic message through, even in this uh, 90s world of, uh, of the Matrix with the computers and all of that stuff. And, and these guys, uh, the Wachowskis definitely knew about Gnosticism. It's not just a spontaneous parallel. Mm -hmm. I, I think you would see more, maybe more parallels uh, between Gnosticism and, and uh, you know, you know, biblical or New Testament kind of Christianity than I would, but th there are certainly still some that are there that you can apply to both. Um, I think, um, you know, it was kind of interesting watching the scene where uh, Neo is sort of, um, you know, shut out of the pod. And it's almost, he's like, he's like reborn because the pod is like, yeah. almost like this womb with like this amniotic yeah. fluid. 
And yeah, and, and you know, this notion too that, that people are resistant to it, it made me think of um, uh, the Pharisees who, who claim that they could see but were actually blind. Um, yeah. So th there is this sort of notion of, of, I think it's perhaps not quite as, in my view, the New Testament view is not quite so elitist. It's not quite as knowledge-based necessarily, but there is something that has to be perceived or accepted, um, and that is that is something that, you know, uh, could be could be difficult or, or challenging to do so. That, um, but what's kind of interesting to me is this notion of of knowledge or gnosis. You know, does it make one unhappy? Like, um, you know, Cipher is uh, the character who's the uh, kind of the turncoat who makes a deal with the machines in order to get back to uh, the Matrix because he's so unhappy living in the real world. You know, why didn't I take the blue pill? He says, ignorance yeah. is bliss. Um, but it kind of made me think of a story, a short story by W.B. Du Bois um, of the coming of John, uh, which was about two men in, in the, uh, you know, in the South, uh, in the, you know, maybe 1890s or 19, early 1900s, one black, one white, both named John. And uh, they go off to school and they learn all these new things. And, you know, the white man comes back and he's perfectly at home with all this knowledge. But the black man comes back and the knowledge has made him unhappy. Uh, he's miserable because he sees the world for what it really is. Mm. Um, and I think his sister asks him, you know, you know, all, all this things, all these things you've learned at school, they've made you unhappy. And he says, yes. And she says, well, do you wish that you had never learned them? And he pauses and he says, well, no, I'm glad that I learned them. <laughs> yeah. um, but there's this notion, I think that, um, I guess what, what I'm wondering is, as somebody who identifies as, you know, somewhat of an intellectual and I think who feels often, um, you know, you know, to be honest, sort of lonely in that, in that, uh, in that experience, uh, you know, there's not that many people to talk to or who, who you can identify with, or connect with. Um, I get it. But on the other hand, I wonder if, you know, there's a part of it that's sort of pseudo intellectual elitism that there may be people watching the movie who think of themselves as, you know, above everybody else. And, and that's why they feel, you know, <laughs> it's you know this burden of of um, of being so brilliant. So I I don't know. It, it, it comes off. I think at times like it could be very demeaning. It makes me think of the way uh, some atheists talk about uh, their atheism as um, something which has uh, you know we're the brave ones because we're willing to see the world for the way it really is. Um, you know. Well, if, remember when. Uh, um... Oh boy, uh, what's what well, Richard Dawkins and uh, Dennett and these other guys embraced this this uh, label of the brights. Oh gosh, yeah. I I uh, wrote into Free Inquiry, which I write for some time, and I said, if any uh, atheist or humanist group actually embraces this, I'm quitting uh, because it is so arrogant. And they tried to say, oh, no, we're not saying other people are not bright. Get out of here. Of course you are. <laughs> and um, in Gnosticism, there was they were described by their enemies as being 
uh, arrogant elitists, and no doubt some were. I mean, you you almost couldn't have a doctrine like this without some people taking it that way. But I tend to think of it as um, more properly understood as sort of like the Buddhist bodhisattvas, those who have attained a higher level and uh, therefore, as in Philippians 2, have, uh, have uh, subjected themselves to the suffering of the world when rightly they don't have to, but they do it for the sake of others to try to help them climb the same mountain. And uh, I, I love the passage in the Gospel of John where Jesus says uh, to his critics, um, no, I'm sorry, no, the, he, uh, it's their meeting uh, in session without him there, and somebody says, well, you know, uh, he has something going for him, and, and the one of the Pharisees says, this multitude that knoweth not the law is accursed. I figure that is the, the red light that ought to be going off in people's brains when they start feeling, yeah, these scum, these fools. Uh, it's uh, It just shows you're not as enlightened as you think you are. And uh, if if you were, you you would know you would have compassion as you would as a parent for your children. I mean, some of the stupid things they do are because they are children. They don't know any better yet. So what are you going to do? Just despise their uh, so-called stupidity? No, you're going to try to help them uh, grow and foster their own development. And so I think that's the the natural approach, and that's sort of tied in also with the parable of the sower where Jesus says there are the four different types of soil. Some are responsive to the word that the Son of Man sows. Uh, what about the ones that are not? Why are they not? Well, one is perfectly pictured in cipher. Uh, he believes the word, and uh, he's taken the red pill, but the cares of the world and the, and the lusts uh, of it and all that uh, make the word unfruitful. Uh, he wishes he'd never heard it, and that's just what happens with Cypher. He wants that stake. He wants uh, money and, and all of that. Uh, so he knows better, but would rather not know better. And, and one other thing about the elitism, when Jesus says at the end of it, the parable, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Uh, that sounds aristocratic, like the, the some of you are on my level, uh, but, uh, and if you are, you'll, you'll, um, get my wavelength here. The rest of you, good luck. Uh, is that really elitism? As Boltman says about the Gospel of John, this is a dualism of decision. Uh, it's trying to galvanize you into thinking, oh my gosh, suppose I'm like the the, the thorny soil. Uh, you, this is a warning. Uh, it's only the elite that get it, but I can decide whether I will be among the elite. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I think it, uh, it, it the uh, elitism of it is really kind of a of a oh, a, a false inference even by Gnostics. They shouldn't be elitists because after all, what, did, uh, what is Morpheus, who is the Gnostic revealer, what does he say the one is going to do? Like you said, he's going to release human beings from the machine. 
you not remember uh, in the in the beginning of uh, the Buddha's ministry, he has this big fight with Mara, the tempter, as soon as uh, enlightenment strikes uh, Gautama and he becomes the Buddha, the Buddha's devil, Mara, who was not so much evil as just the the head honcho of the of the physical world. Everybody is his addict, his uh, customer, and he doesn't want to lose him. So he tries to stop the Buddha from telling anybody else the secret to uh, to ending suffering. Uh, and uh, the one temptation that almost works is, it says, well, uh, Prince Siddhartha, you've discovered the truth. I couldn't stop you. You beat me fair and square. But now why don't you just leave all this behind and go on into nirvana? You've earned it. And the Buddha thinks to himself, well, he does have a point. I know good and well, like Ezekiel, uh, that most people are not going to listen to what I have to say. Should I just throw in the towel? No, no, I, I won't. Some will listen. Uh, and that's the, um, that I think is the, uh, the, the role of uh, the Gnostic revealer. And by the way, uh, there are two big savior figures in textbook Gnosticism. There's the, the one, and there may be several, uh, Gnostic revealers who have caught on and go around, as I mentioned, looking like Diogenes for a receptive person. And, uh, and when they, they find him, they say, here's what's missing and so forth. That's, that's Morpheus. And of course, his name means sleep. He's awakening people from sleep. Well, uh, the other one is the Gnostic Redeemer. And Gnosticism speaks of the redeemed Redeemer. Now, what the heck is that? Well, where did the demiurge get the particles of, of divine light to give order and life to his creation? Uh, it's almost like Frankenstein again. Well, according to some versions of Gnosticism, he trapped the man of light or the primal man, the heavenly Adam, who was one of the emanations from the Godhead, uh, the realm of light, and he he ripped him to pieces and used the 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 photons, uh, I guess you could say, to uh, distribute throughout his 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 material world, and that got it jumping. Uh, but uh, sparks were suffering imprisonment in matter. When those sparks are freed, they re they return to their primal unity as the man of light, and so that's so he then can bring about the final redemption. So you you have a kind of a Christ figure split. Morpheus is the is the Gnostic revealer, and Neo is the Gnostic redeemer. He's the Morpheus himself cannot liberate all the 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 people from the Matrix, but he can he can uh, trigger the the one who will, and that's right out of Gnosticism. Well, uh, and, and also Neo's real name is Thomas the Twin, uh, and. Um, uh, Mr. Anderson. Uh, Anderson means the son of man. Yes, yes. Yep. Yeah, you're right. And and that's uh, both are intentional. His, his name could have been Ralph Cramden if they weren't uh, looking for, for these meaningful names. Exactly. Sure. Well, the, the unfortunate thing for me is as a young man growing up watching Beavis and Butthead is I remember that the, uh, the neighbor's name was Tom Anderson, which always sort of throws me off a little bit <laughs> as I watch it. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I think there. I think you're right that there. Um, 
there is sort of a, an egalitarian, um, you know, counterbalance to the what could be seen as a Gnostic elitism. I think it's Morpheus at one point who says, "The answer, maybe it's, it's it could be Trinity. The answer will find you if you want it to." Uh, mm. Which brought to mind, uh, uh, I think Paul says in Acts 17, uh, uh, you know, God directs the course of history so that all uh, would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Um, That's right. Mm. Yeah. Um, great. So well, we talked a little bit about Anderson, uh, the son of man. Uh, and yeah, so that's one theme that, you know, is sort of here is that Neo is this kind of Messiah figure. I think that the first thing that anyone says about him uh, is, is somebody who comes comes to see him uh, to get a hold of this, uh, I don't know, perhaps it's a virus he's selling him or some kind of, uh, uh, you know, secretive code that he's not supposed to have. And uh, Neo hands him the uh, the disc and, he's, and the guy says, hallelujah, you're my savior, man. Which oh, I, thought, I don't even remember that. Wow. Yeah, yeah that was, which I thought was a little bit on the nose. Oh, but uh, that's good. Yeah, there's something too about you know this idea. Oh, so there's the prophecy that you know he's supposed to be this uh, this uh, figure who's supposed to release everyone. One thing I noticed this time around is that the the ship that they're on, um, you know, in the real world that that Morpheus sort of uh, pilots or whatever, um, this was just called the Nebuchadnezzar. It has a plate on it which is supposed to mark its um, you know when it was created and that kind of thing. And it says Mark 3, number 11, which if you read Mark 3, 11, it says, and whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. Wow. Which, hmm. At the end of the film, you remember, um, you know, when, when the uh, Mr. Smith and Mr. Jones and the third guy, who I don't know if they name, uh, are, uh, you know, trying to kill him, he stops the bullets and they flee. <laughs> um, mm. So I wondered if that was sort of a, uh, you know, looking forward to that. Although wow. I did, I did make the, the, this easier stuff with the Gnostic thing. I was trying to pay attention for that too, watching it. And I wondered if, if Smith and Jones are supposed to be like archons almost. Yeah. They protect the, uh, the, uh, false world of, uh, of the Demiurge, uh, from having people like the, like East German guards patrolling the Berlin wall. You don't want the sparks to escape or that you'll, uh, deplete the energy for the the machines. So yeah, I'd say that's exactly right. And the think of how they can take over anybody, and they morph into the other shapes. They're demons possessing their victims. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Um, oh, I had a thought, and then I lost it. Where'd it go? Um, oh, the, the one thing though that was kind of interesting to me is that there's a sense in which the film is presenting almost a reverse Gnosticism, because it's the physical world, which is viewed as real, and the virtual world, which is viewed as false. And we've been placed in this virtual world and are trying to return to the physical world. Um, hmm. Which I which I, I don't know if that's, um, I don't know. I don't know if there's supposed to be a point there or if they're just sort of taking the the symbols and sort of fitting them in however they can. But, um, but I, did, I thought that was kind of interesting. I think that uh, they're just trying to make by way of analogy, the distinction between the real world and the false world, um, the the matrix being the virtual world is uh, a little more like non-dualist Hinduism, where it's all some kind of an illusion that you will snap out of uh, and realize, you know, what was I doing? Where, where was I? What was I? Um, uh, where uh, because the people that take the red pill vanish from this world and they wind up in the real world, which, however, is not too pleasant at the moment. Um, 
but in Gnosticism, the 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 false world is exists. Uh, it's it's uh, made of matter, but exactly you're exactly right. The 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 uh, world of light is the real world, and it's like a plate. I think Gnosticism is uh, someone said. Uh, Platonism run riot, that it's the, uh, the the world of light, the world of uh, reason and truth that is real, and the material world is merely a, a sloppy, uh, transitory copy of it. And I think they're just saying real world versus illusory world. Uh, Gnosticism doesn't make it an illusion. It, it just makes it uh, not what you think that there's something even realer than this. But mm -hmm. literally speaking, yeah, you would be right. The material world is what you need to be saved from. Yeah. Well, as I was watching it, just looking at all these different influences that, that people sort of point out, there's one that I noticed that I didn't see written about anywhere else, which is the scene where Smith is trying to break down Morpheus when he's, when he's they've sort of found him and he's tied to the chair and he's, uh, he's like trying to do like a mental job on him to like, <laughs> maybe be able to take control. Um, it brought to mind for me uh, the scene in 1984 where O'Brien is trying to break down Winston. Yeah. Um, and particularly one thing that uh, Smith says, he says that the machines had at first tried to create a utopia for humans, but it didn't work. Um, that somehow, you know, suffering has to be part of the program or, or humans, you know, will wake up out of it. It won't feel real to them. They, they won't cooperate. And uh, it reminded me of uh, the statement O'Brien had made that, uh, you know, for power to really work effectively, uh, it has to use cruelty. Um, and and, and, I, and I, it's a pretty, you know, uh, pessimistic viewpoint, but, but uh, I wondered uh, if you had any thoughts on, on that notion. Well, uh, Gnosticism has this basic cosmogony, uh, this doctrine of how the world began, in common with Hinduism and Jainism, who all say in one way or another that at first there was a world of matter, but it was an undisturbed, uniform, placid lake. It was inert. Um, but then somehow these divine sparks uh, rained down into it and began to stir it up. And the elements of difference, this sounds kind of like uh, some of the pre-Socratic philosophers too, they began to stir it up and to cause latent elements to emerge and and mix together in different ways and that's how we have a world of many and diverse entities uh it it they there wouldn't be any there wouldn't be any difference any multiplicity uh, any activity if it weren't for the uh these divine sparks the the jivas or the uh, atmans depending how you who you're talking to uh and stirring them up and colliding and and so on uh, but that results in suffering. The, the sparks of light sensitize the beings they now energize like a battery in a flashlight so that the, the flesh beings 
begin to sense suffering, which they didn't before. They were mindlessly mm -hmm. content. And th the reason for this is to make the sparks become self-aware and say, this can't be right. There's got to be some way to get out of this. And life after life of it? No thanks. I'm, I'm getting off the merry-go-round. And so the suffering is necessary if there is to be a, a release from suffering. You're just going to be comatose and not know the difference if there isn't any. And so uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. You need to be saved. I mean, you're really lost if you don't know you're lost. Uh, but if you do, uh, then you you may seek a way out. So that that's uh, straight stuff in, in all these views. I think you're hmm. exactly that's right. Interesting. So th th there is this, I think, kind of an interesting epistemology uh, problem that's sort of presented in the film or, or an interesting problem with how we can know anything. Um, you know, the matrix is sort of described as a prison for your mind. Um, uh, and, and I think there's clear parallels that we could try to make to the real world, which, which I think are intended, um, that, you know, we sort of live in this idea soup, uh, that shapes the way we see the world and, and limits how much of reality we're able to see. Um, mm -hmm. you know, what, you know, what, you know, it's, it's, you know, uh, commercialism or whatever it is that is being attacked in the film. It develops us in a certain way, uh, that we don't always have uh, complete control over. More seriously, uh, or more problematic is this notion of, you know, knowing anything, period, not just sort of seeing things from a biased point of view, but Descartes' uh, evil demon comes to mind, uh, you know, this, mm. this, this idea that, you know, how could you know that for sure that all of your thoughts are not being um, brought about by an evil demon who's, uh, who's uh, you know, warping your mind, or how do you know you're not a brain in a vat, or whatever the case may be. Mm. You know, how can we know that, that, that what we what we perceive isn't just some some illusion of some kind? Um, uh, how can we know anything at all? Even um, it, it made me think of a, a film that uh, predates this one by uh, Rainer Werner Fassbender called World on a Wire. Hmm, um, I'm not familiar with it. Oh, you got you got to see it. it. Was actually a TV movie first, so it's in two parts. It's it's kind of long, but um, it's basically in this film. Uh, there's, it, it's a little, it's very similar to the matrix, but more banal <laughs> in a way, the simulation, <laughs> the simulation is more banal. So you have these, um, these, this corporation that has created this simulated world as a means of, um, being able to test basically either government emergency responses, you know, preparedness kind of stuff, <laughs> or, uh, testing advertisements, marketing to see what's effective. So they can sort of hire themselves out as these sort of marketing experts, <laughs> um, Everybody in this world doesn't know that it's fake. So they'll be they'll, they'll have all these modules or, or nodes or whatever that aren't aware that they're you know not real people. And it, there's this idea that if they did know, they would you know become despondent and suicidal. But they have a um, they have like sort of a man on the inside that they communicate with, and they can go into the world too. And the way they get out is to step into a payphone and and call and make a phone call, and that Sheesh. brings them out. So. Um, Anyway, I, I don't want to ruin the film, but, but you know, there, there's some more interesting things that are happening there. But there's some pretty clear, um, I think, influences there on the Matrix. Um, although, like I said, um, you know, the Matrix sort of tries to make the uh, the machines seem a little more uh, malevolent. Um, yeah. And I guess maybe one more thing I, I'll just kind of bring up in, in, in this sort of whole soup I'm search stirring up here about uh, <laughs> this notion of epistemological uncertainty. Um, and I don't want to go too far in this because I, I I don't I don't want to come off as I'm as I'm seeming demeaning or anything, but I, I think it's it's interesting that the filmmakers I, I'm wondering if they're supposed to be if the Matrix is sort of uh, this way of thinking about 
real, uh, you know, the real world as being somehow illusory or the physical world being somehow illusory, what's apparent is not always real. Uh, just because of the fact that both of the filmmakers, you know, within an, uh, the course of a number of years, both, you know, underwent sex changes and, and identified as, as the opposite gender. Um, I'm wondering if there's maybe sort of an example of matrix-like thinking of, of, of what you see isn't necessarily what you get. Yeah, and that you're fundamentally alienated from the material world in which you find yourself. Um, my uh, uh, guess is that all of a uh, transgender business is is what it used to be called uh, body dysmorphic disorder, uh, like people that feel like you know this leg doesn't really seem to be mine. I think I'm going to see about getting it amputated because uh, there are plenty of people like that. I mean, you know, relatively uh, um, uh, small, but uh, what is? I mean, nobody's going to have a social movement based on that, like the, you know, the leg amputatees uh, lobby here. Uh, but I think it's the same thing that uh, I somehow don't feel male. So let me become a female, which you can't really do. Uh, and it seems to me that is a psychological disorder centered on fundamental alienation for whatever reason from, from the body you were born in. I mean, how much more you can you get, but no, I don't like it. Uh, I think it, it is part of, uh, uh, this uh, and it also implies that this is unstable and changeable and and not definitively real. So I'd agree with you. You know, I, I do think this whole notion of you know, can we know anything at all is kind of a fascinating one. And I, I know that um, you know, a, a philosopher like Alvin Plantinga would argue that you know, given naturalism and, and evolution both being true, uh, you, you could never know for sure that any of your thoughts were accurate or supposed to represent the real world because, uh, you know, you were not uh, intended uh, to perceive the real world, but uh, you were, uh, but there were forces that were based on propagation that sometimes might uh, benefit from knowing the truth, but not necessarily, right. uh, you know, only as a secondary concern. And, uh, but, but it does bring up this whole issue of, of, you know, how you can know anything at all. And, um, uh, curious to hear some of your thoughts on that. Well, what uh, Plantinga and others don't seem to be including in that is that some say that uh, with the same sort of sociobiology that people believe in God because there's survival value in it, regardless of whether that is true or not. In any case, all of these things are, are genetic fallacies. It, it doesn't really matter how you came to, to think of something. It may be true anyway. Uh, mm -hmm. So to me that, like there's, uh, um, R.C. Sproul just passed away recently. I always thought his book, The Psychology of Atheism, was brilliant. The way he combines uh, the notion of the the Mysterium Tremendum from Rudolf Otto, the, 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 the holy terror of encountering the holy God, whatever, and, and that being like uh, the original trauma that Freud speaks about, uh, which creates uh, anxieties and um, uh, 
false symptoms and, and so forth. And he relates, Sproul related this to Romans chapter one, that everybody originally somewhere back there had an encounter with God, but it was too threatening and invasive uh, as against human self-interest. And so they repressed the knowledge and decided they needed to replace that truth with something. So they came up with a ridiculous charade of idolatry and polytheism atheism. That is really brilliant, but it doesn't prove atheism. I mean, mm -hmm. if, I mean, that atheism is wrong. It's brilliant. I don't want to, uh, to undermine it. He, he really did a great job there. But even if that's correct, I mean, it's like, if there is a God, in fact, he, he did a later condensed edition called, if there is a God, why are there atheists? Well, that's very revealing because the argument assumes there is a God. Well, then how would you account for atheism? It doesn't discredit atheism because you can put the shoe on the other foot and say, as Freud did, oh, come on, uh, belief in God is a childish refusal to grow up. I mean, that works too. I, I don't know. You know, you can't really prove either one of them is true. Yeah. And, and yeah. the approach yeah. of God. Uh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, the approach of people that say, uh, well, we've, uh, we've, the Christian uh, or the theist, whatever, can have certainty. I think Francis Schaeffer used to say that, whereas others can't. Well, if the Christian is right, and or the theist is right, and there is an objective ground of truth in being, and you can know that, that that's true, and that you're in touch with it, well, then you can pat yourself on the back and say you have certainty, but you're really kidding yourself. You're saying, because I need this, it must exist. Oh, there's no basis for morality if there's not an objectively true morality created by a real God. So since we need such a thing, we're entitled to just say we have it. To me, that's like saying, boy, I got to pay my mortgage. Uh, I need the money. I'm just going to uh, affirm that I have it and write <laughs> a rubber check to the mortgage company. <laughs> that's no proof that it's true. Sure, sure. Yeah, I think I, I agree with you that just because you want to believe something, that doesn't mean it's true. But I think there is this sort of issue of, of grounding that I think can be problematic. Um, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis uh, talked to, developed this sort of argument from reason that um, if God doesn't exist, then anything you believe um, is not necessarily, particularly uh, if naturalism and, and evolutionary, you know, naturalistic materialism and evolutionary theory are true, anything that you believe, you don't believe because it's rational, it may be rational. Uh, but but the causes that create the conclusions that you reach are not necessarily rational. They're physical. They have to do with, you know, atoms banging around in your head to, to oversimplify it. Um, but it, it does seem that, you know, even if there are ways of sort of probabilistically getting around that, you know, saying, well, you know, yes, but, you know, the more you can perceive the real world, the, the, better, the better you'll do overall, except... You know, maybe if Richard Dawkins wants to say something like, well, people only believe in God because this gene is misleading them, which I think undercuts his whole argument from, from you know, rationality. Um, but, but at the very least, a kind of reductive materialism, uh, I think, makes it really impossible to have any sort of sense of, of being able to know anything. Well, uh, that may be true, but if if you're just feeling cornered, 
and you must have a way to, to be sure about things is back to the same problem that uh, you don't know that that's true. Uh, you just positing that, that it is. I mean, why is that not one of Schaefer's or upper story leaps? Uh, I, I don't think that uh, true knowledge is possible, but I think that uh, Pirro and the ancient skeptics were right about this, or at least they have a manageable view when they said, if any of these philosophical debates could ever be settled, they would have been long ago because mm. no arguments really prove anything. But luckily, you don't really need to know those things to get along in life, in the world. Probability is good good enough for that. It's probably right that if you drink poison, you're going to die based on our inferences from people who, who've done it. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I don't need to know if there's a God to know that it is in my interest to keep up my end of the social compact. It just seems that works the way most people want it to work. And, and these other things, how can we be held responsible for not having certainty when there is not grounds for certainty? Probabilities as, as good as we're going to get. And mm -hmm. I don't see a, a problem with that. It only appears to be a problem if we think absolutely sure we're in big trouble. I don't see how we are. I, mean, I would never argue, I think as, as, as you were saying, some Christians argue, and as I've heard some Christians argue, we can only know something if God exists. And come on, we have to be able to know something. We have to be able to have certainty. So therefore, we're certain that God exists. I, I would question you know, our ability to have certainty. I mean, I would say to, it is probabilistic to, to a lot, you know, to, to a large degree. But I think that the notion that our faculties can tell us anything at all, period, suggests some kind of intentionality um, in how our, how our minds or brains are supposed to work. So I, I think I would argue not that, you know, we have to believe this because otherwise it's what a terrible world we live in. But isn't the fact that that we do think that we can we can reason uh, and, and learn things and, and know some things, to, you know, with a, to a large degree of probability, isn't that a pointer uh, to something beyond, uh, you know, atoms banging around in our heads? Well, uh, it uh, I think Dawkins' view would be uh, sufficient uh, to if he, if you just say, well, there probably were people whose perceptions were wildly different, and they simply could not survive in the world. They are their descendants, and uh, so they were weeded out. And though we may have, like Kant said, a certain um, array of uh, logical functions of judgment and categories of perception, they don't necessarily tell us what what the thing in itself is like, or even if there is one. Uh, but that's, um, it's, it's correct for the world we live in. Like Shankara says that uh, the world is ultimately not like what we see, but uh, we are in a state of avidya, uh, equivalent to ignorance. Uh, we, we don't know the whole picture but there is there appear to be rules of how to function in this world though there is a more real one which you can attain by meditation they they say hmm. i don't think kant thought you could escape the like what kant called the the um the uh, categories of perception and the logical functions of judgment are what 
Shankara called the upadis, the uh, the uh, refracting conditions. Uh, we we don't see the the Brahman, the ultimate reality. We see things uh, refracted and fragmented, uh, and but on that level there is a system for how things work, uh, and that includes religion. We need to pray to the gods and all that, but we can go beyond the gods uh, by meditation. Now, I, it's like they're both saying, yeah, this isn't knowledge of the world we live in is not ultimately certain, and it may be misleading, but while we're in it, uh, our faculties are sufficient to navigate within it. Whether there is something beyond it, uh, who knows? Kant said, I, if I understand him right, we, we don't know. We, we never will know. Shankara said, well, we can know, but not rationally. We can know experientially. Hmm. I, I kind of, like, I would respect what Clark Pinnock used to say. Uh, he knew you, you can't know anything. He said, that's why we have words like belief and faith. And, and well, what, what is the status of those things? Things. He said, well, they're like working hypotheses. He says, I don't absolutely know there's a God or Jesus died for my sins, but uh, this, this understanding of life and the world is so far is, a, is an admirable working hypothesis. It seems to work. As Schaefer would say, it has empirical fit. I could be wrong, but uh, this is the way I'm, I'm going, and it is by faith. So mm -hmm. I think that's a consistent approach. It's interesting. Uh, well, as as we're, we should probably start wrapping up at this point. Was, was there anything uh, anything else you wanted to discuss in the film that really stood out to you as something worth mentioning? Well, uh, the role of Trinity, uh, I think she's in there because she is, uh, well, I guess to provide the love interest, but in Gnostic terms, she would be the fallen Sophia, uh, whom the uh, the Gnostic, uh, it's like another myth to say the same thing. She is the the captive divinity in the material world and uh and her the the sorrows of the world are really her sorrows and uh, i think that and in uh simonian gnosticism simon became uh incarnate or apparently incarnate to rescue the fallen sophia uh whom he finds as a prostitute in a brothel and and redeems her and this is symbolic for the gnostic revealer seeking out the fallen and so uh, she doesn't really function that way, I guess, but I think she is in there uh, to provide, as her name implies, the Trinity, the third um, item in the, the the triad of the Gnostic Revealer, the Gnostic Redeemer, and the Fallen Sophia. Wow, that's really that's interesting. Mm. Wow. Well, Dr. Price, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this with me. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I was, I was Oh, yeah. I knew you weren't going to disappoint me, and you'd have a lot of interesting things to say. Um, for, for people interested in, in learning more about you, I, I kind of gave a bio at the, at the top there, but uh, uh, yeah, your website, robertmprice.mindvendor.com. Uh, anything else, any projects you're working on, anything people should check out? Well, my uh, book, Holy Fable, Volume 2, The Gospels and Acts, Undistorted by Faith uh, was just published and it's available for about 20 bucks on Amazon. The previous volume was uh, volume one, uh, the Old Testament Undistorted by Faith. And um, I've got uh, a book called Biblical Buddhism that's supposed to be out anytime uh, from uh, the Indian publisher Motilal Banarsidas. I'm not speaking in tongues. Uh, <laughs> uh, and hallelujah. Oh, and also, if anybody uh, 
has money they want to flush away, uh, you could uh, become a Patreon supporter of mine. Uh, and uh, I have uh, oh, old uh, papers, new articles and columns and stuff uh, more often than once a month that you can only see there. So Robert M. Price on Patreon, that'd be a big help. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Price. Thank you. Great, great fun. <laughs>